I've been digging into data engineering and databases recently, and so this week is going to be about Snowflake. Snowflake is one of the standout data companies of the past 10 years, and it's notable in my mind because when they IPO'd a year ago, Warren Buffett actually broke one of his main rules about not investing in technology he doesn't understand and invested in Snowflake because it had such impressive statistics. But it's also just clearly had its own warping of the universe in terms of its gravitational pull on the data field. And I wanted to really understand what makes it so special. So I went back in the archives. This is the Drill to Detail podcast six years ago in 2016. So well before it was the behemoth that it was known today. And this is Kent Graziano, who is eventually the chief tech evangelist. He did retire last year, but this is him talking about why he joined Snowflake. But just for now, actually, I'm actually curious to see a bit more about Snowflake DB really been working with. So you're a long-term kind of a developer with Oracle. Um, I heard I first heard about Snowflake, I think, when Greg Rahm went there um, a while ago after working on Impala uh, and actually before that working in, in Oracle. Um, and you're there now. So tell me, I mean, Kent, you're quite technical. Um, what, what, how, what's the kind of, I suppose, in a way, what is special about Snowflake and what does it do differently and why... Give us a bit of background here, what Snowflake DB is, first of all, and then we'll get into a bit more kind of the ways and whys and so on. What, what is it, first of all? Okay, so uh, fundamentally, Snow, Snowflake is a data warehouse as a service. So it's, it's in the cloud. It is a fully relational database. Uh, it's MPP. It's columnar. So it's been designed specifically for high-speed analytics, if you will. So it's designed as a data warehouse platform, not as an OLTP platform. So that's kind of the first bit. And one of the, the very unique things about it is that it was designed from the ground up to be a cloud-native database. So... It's not a repurposing or refactoring of any existing code base. Um, two of the technical founders came from, from Oracle, um, Benoit and Thierry. Uh, we, both you and I, have good friends who worked for them at Oracle. Um, they, they started this new project and started with a blank sheet of paper, a blank text editor, whatever it was they were using, and started coding. So started for zero lines of code and built a brand new database that was specifically designed to be cloud resident and, and work with the, I'll say, the unique features that are available in the cloud that we didn't have available in on-prem systems. So, so, so let's just put that in some context then. So examples of what, what people might understand the cloud databases to be. So first of all, let's take, for example, Oracle. There's an Oracle cloud, there's an Oracle database cloud service. Okay, that's one that's out at the moment. So you've also got things like Redshift. I think the most, most, the most kind of famous, you know, cloud native kind of database is Redshift. Okay, so contrast, for, just for, in, in a kind of technical sense, you know, contrast... Um, Snowflake to say Oracle database cloud service and this isn't a kind of like a knocking Oracle thing you know but it's obviously that is a, a an example I suppose of taking a, a an on-premise database that's probably general purpose and it's been moved into the cloud and it's being used for more than just kind of like data warehousing and you've got something like Redshift which is probably the canonical kind of version of, of this how, how does Snowflake differ to those two really okay well 
at a very fundamental level, neither of those, whether it's Redshift, which is based on Postgres, and Oracle, which is obviously Oracle, neither of them were written with the cloud architecture in mind. Um, I hate to use the word legacy, but we'll, for the purpose of this conversation, we'll say that legacy code, classic, classic. Yeah, that's a better term. I like that better. The classic code base that they have evolved out of was written, you know, some of it 30 years ago, specifically for optimizing performance on known hardware, on a set hardware basis, an operating system, certain number of CPUs, taking advantage of a certain kind of memory and having a certain amount of storage available in a box, right? Whether it was a server under your desk or a huge rack in a data center. Those companies did a great job, you know, Oracle in particular, because obviously I'm a huge Oracle fan. You've been doing it forever and still an Oracle Ace director. Did a great job, you know, building a, a multi-purpose database that could scale within the confines of, of the hardware environments. And, of course, they built the engineered systems like Exadata, which is engineered specifically for that Exadata hardware. And the hardware has been optimized as well as the software has been optimized to get the best performance. So they're coming from a completely different paradigm than Snowflake. So we now get to the, get to the cloud and you hear about the, the elastic cloud. Well, what, is, what does that mean? That means you have, you're able to go beyond the confines of hardware that you've pre-purchased in a data center. You know, today for on-prem systems, whether it's an Exadata box or even Postgres uh, on a server, you have to do capacity planning and say, how, how big a load do I expect to need? Uh, how much data do I expect to have? And then spec out in some detail and perhaps even do an RFP to go get the hardware to support the software you're going to install on it and the applications you're going to build with it. With the Elastic Cloud, we now have the ability to do things like grab space as we need it, expand and add compute power as we need it. So we can expand it and contract it. And that's one of the things that uh, we've done with Snowflake is it's it is truly dynamic. You don't have to pre-allocate space. As you load data, the Snowflake service grabs that space from within the cloud resources. In this case, happens to be AWS, Amazon Web Services. Um, we're, we're out there. We'll, we'll grab the space you need. And the, the beauty of that is you only get charged for the space you're using. So you don't have to go buy you know, 500 terabytes that you might not need for five years. We, as you load the data, the storage dynamically expands. If you purge data, it dynamically contracts and the price goes down along with it. So you're not stuck with, oh, well, my, my max was I, I one day loaded 
10 terabytes. And so now I'm getting charged for 10 terabytes of space when the next day I deleted five of those terabytes. So, so how would it, I mean, it that, I mean that, that obviously that, that, that would, that would be how it compares to say Oracle. And I suppose a devil's advocate argument is you could, you could run Oracle on AWS, you know, and, and you could kind of allocate more CPUs dynamically cost wise. That's quite difficult, isn't it? Because you, you, you haven't got, you haven't got the same, um, you know, almost like demand-based pricing and so on there. But what about, say, with Redshift? I mean, that would be the, the classic kind of comparison would be, um, you know, Redshift to sort of Snowflake. How, how, I mean, you said obviously it's based on Postgres. It's different there. I mean, how, how else, again, is it different to, say, Redshift apart from the fact it's, it's not based on legacy code? And, and that's, that's, that's a very interesting conversation as well. As we've, we, Redshift is one of our, our top competitors, and so we run into them all the time. And... I have actually looked at the Redshift administration manual, which is as big or perhaps bigger than some of the DBA manuals for Oracle. Because it was based on you know classic Postgres code, there are still things you have to do inside of Redshift, like partitioning keys. You still have to put in partition keys, and and if you're trying to and when you do that, because it's an MPP type environment. So how many CPUs do you have? Well, I've got four CPUs. Okay, I've got four nodes. So I'm going to stripe. I have to come up with a partition key and stripe the data now across those four nodes. Well, in Snowflake, we don't have to do that. We've done a separation between the compute and the storage. So you have one common set of storage, and then you have independent compute nodes. So we have no partitioning keys that have to be defined. There's nothing for a DBA to do in that regard. They just simply have to load the data and model the data to a certain extent. But when you go to run a query, then Snowflake will dynamically, based on how many nodes you've allocated, say I've allocated a four-node cluster, it will grab that data, move it over into SSD cache, and stripe it appropriately based on the fact that you have four nodes and we have a, a dynamic optimization engine that does all that for you that's why i would say this is a service well on redshift you have to you do have to build that into the design of your data model now say turns out four nodes is not enough on your redshift cluster and you need to go to eight nodes well now you've got that problem because the, the storage and the compute is tightly coupled in Redshift. How do I move that f data that's striped across four nodes now to eight nodes? Well, there's only one way to do that. You have to unload the data and then reload it and restripe it. And Amazon has a, a nice utility for that, which the you know, customers, an administrator has to go in. You have to set up your eight-node cluster, quiesce your four-node cluster, export all the data from the four-node cluster, and import it into the eight-node cluster, and then move everybody over to work on your eight-node cluster and turn off your four-node cluster. So it's not... You do have the ability to go back and forth, but there's a certain amount of administration and time. And even in the uh, the Redshift manual, you know, there is a there is a utility that'll do this all for you. So you don't have to manually do the exports and manually do the imports. It'll it'll do the migration for you. But it does say it could take anywhere from you know a, a few minutes to multiple hours to potentially days, depending on how much data you have. So imagine you have a 20 terabyte 
data warehouse. And that has to be completely exported and then restriped and imported to the new cluster. That is going to take some physical time. And while that's happening, your data warehouse has to be in read-only mode, your current four node. So now you have to shut off your updates. So, so I was talking. I was meet, met someone for for, um, for dinner in London last night who who had a kind of who works as a, I think a CTO or product manager at an an, um, an e-commerce startup, and they were using uh, Redshift to do their to do their kind of work. And um, he, he, I think he echoed a lot of things you're saying there about the amount of administration that's involved, and also because it's a kind of column store database, um, it was quite slow to load. You know, I think that's kind of inherent in that sort of thing. Um, but what they've done is they've actually, and this is interesting, they've actually moved from uh, Redshift to Google, to Google Big Big Table and BigQuery and so on. BigQuery, um, so, yeah. yeah. So they've actually gone from kind of a pure relational database in the cloud to using kind of you know BigQuery and and, and so on there. I mean, again, I suppose a kind of a, a devil's advocate question to you is. Is it, is, is it slightly kind of um, uh, weird now to actually build a new relational database running in, running in the cloud when actually the world is moving towards using kind of, uh, you know, Hadoop and, and various SQL on Hadoop engines and so on? You know, you must have had that thought yourself, really. What, 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 what's the justification for building another relational database now, really, do you think? compared? Oh, that, yeah, that's yeah. A, that's a, yeah, that's an excellent question, Mark. Uh, because obviously, when I when I ran across Snowflake and I first saw it and I looked at it and I'm like, wow, this is this is pretty interesting. Uh, the separation compute from storage, all of that was was fascinating. The thing that got me, and this may be the justification here, is it's native SQL. It's SQL, and one of their phrases, and you know, we we do use this when when we are we're doing our uh, our, our pitch is if you know SQL, we can have you working in Snowflake within two hours. And not only that, you know, Snowflake handles unstructured data, JSON and XML data. It doesn't take much longer for you to then be able to actually query JSON structures out of Snowflake, again, using now extensions to SQL. And so I think in part, the part of the justification is None of what you mentioned, the Hadoops, the NoSQLs, all of those were built to natively handle SQL. And SQL, as uh, you know, we, we've been saying in a lot of our conferences recently, we're saying yes, SQL, not NoSQL, yes, SQL. There are more people in the world who understand SQL than certainly understand MapReduce or Hive, or Impala, or any of those. And so the, the real justification for this, and I had this conversation with one of our founders, is we're eliminating a lot of the complexity. Yes, you can do all kinds of great stuff with these, these new open source projects, but it does require a certain level of engineering expertise that most people, even in IT, don't have, and arguably there are many DBAs who may be world-class DBAs, but it's a stretch for them to go do some of the things that need to be done over in the Hadoop and the NoSQL world to get the same performance, to get the same results, and deliver the same value to their to their business that they can with a relational database, where they can go to something like Snowflake, which is a pure relational database model but written specifically, again, for the cloud. And it's a very easy transition. I mean, it, it 
took me no time at all. I was writing blog posts and working with Snowflake within a week of going to work for the company. We're building and reverse engineering data models within a month. Uh, thanks to, you mentioned Greg Ron earlier, I had seen his presentation at Oak Table World last year on querying JSON. I went through his demo and that was pretty much all I needed to learn how to be able to query JSON out of a Snowflake table that's been loaded. It's a true schema on read. Load the JSON document in, but I can write SQL now to tease it apart uh, without having to write MapReduce or some other complex ETL and putting into relational tables. It's, it's in a relational table, but as a JSON object. Um, very cool technology to be able to do that. And I think you know, that's the justification there. It's it's not only just the relational, but being able to merge the relational with the semi-structured in an environment that is familiar to the majority of people in the database world and easy, easily accessible to them. And then consequently, all of your standard ETL and BI tools can point to it. And, and and use it via either ODBC or a JDBC connector, just like Redshift, Oracle, SQL Server, Teradata, you name it. So we're on an even playing field there, but now you've got a high-performance cloud-native, truly cloud-native database engine to work with. So there are a couple things here that I want to comment on for those listening along. So one, it's pretty interesting the words that they use to describe uh, the scaling characteristics of Snowflake. It, this is in 2016, so you have to remember AWS Lambda was only introduced less than a year ago. And today we'll probably use the term serverless to describe some of this stuff. Uh, he also used the word cloud native data warehouse, and cloud native has morphed quite a bit over the last few years to include Kubernetes and to include containers and to include DevOps practices for some reason. Um, but here he's using it to say it's native to the cloud in the sense that it wasn't, it didn't have a previous form in terms of a standalone database. It was just born in the cloud and with uh, different assumptions based on that. The other thing that I find pretty interesting just in terms of my biases is the victory of SQL, right? Why did Snowflake win out over BigQuery? Uh, it's because they let people write native SQL and there are more people who know how to write SQL, which is a little bit depressing for the developers among us because it's more alien, it's a little bit more rigid because it's so declarative, but there are more people who write SQL. 